Welcome to Paddy Talks, brought to you thanks to Seed Golf Balls, who deliver you affordable to performance, same performance, half the price. Check them out at www.seedgolf.com and try them today. Thank you for pressing play. On today's show, we have the man behind the sponsor of the show, Mr. Seed Golf, is with us today, massively supported by Dean and his company. But first, as Gabe Byrne would say, and as I was corrected by a good friend of mine, wrote it there, Colette. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Joe Bradley told us the production line was finished in Kerry. Where's Joe Bradley? What do you think of that? On today's show, we have the man behind the sponsor of this show, so I've got to be good. Mr. Seed Golf is on the couch, my new couch, uh, so we can learn all about one of the fastest growing brands in golf and in Irish golf. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Dean Clatt. Paddy, thank you very much for having me. It's taken us a little while to get this together. We've had a few guys to do it, but we're, we're finally here sitting down and I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. 19 weeks. Is it? 19 weeks, yeah. So what episode are we up to? This is number 19. Fantastic. Very good. So I'll get into a couple of questions about Seed Golf and the company in a minute. Sure. But first, let's get to know Mr. Dean Clatt. Mm-hmm. Right, so who is Dean Clatt? So if you're walking up some, who is Dean Clatt? Who is Dean Clatt? That's a very, very wide uh, and loaded question. Um, in, in what sense? Do you want a business sense or do you want a personal sense? Or? Personal sense. Personal sense, I suppose. Uh, well, I, I would consider myself very much a golf person. So my dad was a golf pro back in Australia at a, a little golf club called Virginia Golf Club. Um, so I've kind of always been around, uh, the golf side of, of things. Obviously my accent's uh, not Irish, so I'm, I'm from Australia originally. And, uh, we would have lived a very uh, outdoor kind of lifestyle down there, played a lot of different sports as a kid, all that sort of stuff, but would have been very much a, a golf person growing up. So dad would have, he was a pretty good golfer actually. So fairly competitive, played a lot of programs, played on the seniors tour over here in Europe for a little bit. Um, tried to qualify for a couple of British Opens when he was younger, all that sort of stuff. So I would have always, would have caddied for him as a kid and always grown up in that environment of being around. Grew up in a back of a pro shop, really, I guess. So, uh, so yeah, I guess I'm a, a golf guy. I've got three kids who keep me busy now. Wife's Irish from Kildare, and that's how I ended up over here about 10 years ago. Oh, brilliant. So it's not just my dad was a golfer and played on the seniors tour. Greg Norman, when he was inducted in the Hall of Fame, tanked three main people, one of which was John Clatt. My dad, yeah. Well, he, he um, so that's, he's a really interesting character. So back in the day, so as I said, he was a pretty good golfer, but um, in those days to uh, to be a golf pro, um, there wasn't really a, a big tour, particularly in Australia, to go and play. So if you wanted to make a living out of, of being a golf professional, you had to be a club professional. So as I said, he was at this place called Virginia Golf Club and he used to have a really good junior program where um, he'd encourage a lot of juniors to come down. So on a Saturday morning, I can't remember the exact cost. It was probably back in that, the day, probably like a dollar or two dollars or something for, to drop your kid off. Dad would give them all lessons and stuff and then they'd go and play nine holes. So it'd be kind of like the whole morning would be taken up. And, and Greg Norman came through there. Um, Wayne Grady was another one. So he won the PGA Championship and whenever that was. And there was a whole stack of, of really good golfers came through that golf club, particularly when uh, um, in the time that Dad was a pro there. He was there for about 40 years. So it was an amazing, um, and not, so I, where I'm from is from in Brisbane in Queensland. So not just from that golf club in Virginia, but just that whole time 
of, of uh, golf in Queensland was quite amazing. Like Ian Baker Finch came from there as well, so we would have played a lot of golf with him. Um, a whole stack of players came through that through that, that environment. But um, uh, so yeah, I kind of just grew up always being around, like caddying for Dad in programs, and that was the sort of guys he was playing with. So. It was look yeah, like it now. Really, yeah. Like, yeah, it's like, like a dream a, stuff for a lot of kids growing up now. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's pretty. It was a pretty unique way to grow up, definitely. And as I said, I kind of grew up in the back of the pro shop. And golf clubs in those days, particularly in Australia, it's a very egalitarian sport down there. So you don't have to. It's not. Um, you don't have to be super posh or anything like that to play. It's not an expensive sport. So Australia's a big country, lots of land, golf courses everywhere. Um, really, a working class sort of game. So the 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 characters at a golf club, and and particularly at Dad's club, the pro shop was kind of like the hub. For the golf club so it was right the pro shop was right on the big practice party green they used to have there so everybody used to kind of congregate around the front of the pro shop and i'd just hang around out at the back and you'd hear all these stories and it was just a, it was a good laugh there was just a lot of characters and it was just a good place to be around so i didn't really start playing till i was about seriously till i was about 15 because i was playing all those other sports and stuff but um like dad never pushed me into the game or anything but it was just always around it as a kid so so getting to golf around 15, was there any aspirations because you're, you're low enough handicap? Uh, yeah, I think, well, any kid, as you grow up in that environment, you kind of, I always looked at the, the club pro as being quite a difficult job, particularly um, particularly in, at, in dad's time. It was it was a difficult job, I thought, and I never really had any aspirations to do that, but I would have loved to have been a tour player. But um, it's funny, I, I, I'm not a big practicer, so I never practice, I just would play. And uh, well, there's a question about that later, but yeah, I think we know the answer now. <laughs> well, I can tell you exactly why. So, that's that was dad, dad was just a real natural, so he was never a member of a golf club or anything like that. So, his parents were caterers at a golf club when he was a kid, so he used to just basically a bit the same as myself, would just use the golf course as a playground, really, and go and play. So, he ended up becoming an apprentice golfer without ever being a member of a golf club or ever having a handicap or any of that sort of stuff, which is pretty unusual when you think about it in today's day. So, he was a real natural ball striker, terrible putter. And, uh, but we'd never practice. And so we'd rock up to these pro-ams and uh, I'll give you a really good story actually. Uh, I can remember one time there was a big tournament down there. It was called the Jack Newton Celebrity Classic. I don't, do you know Jack Newton at all? Do you remember the name? Jack Newton was a well-known Australian golf pro before Greg Norman's era. So it's kind of seventies. He finished runner up, I think in the masters to Tom Watson, finished runner up in the open to Watson again, I think. And anyway, he had a terrible accident. Um, walked into a propeller of a of a small light plane, lost an arm and an eye, and horrific injuries, life changing, whole thing, professional golfer, and that can no longer play. Anyway, they used to have this charity event that he'd organised up in this place called Noosa in Sunshine Coast of Queensland, and kind of because Jack was such a star in those days, anybody that anybody would, would play, sort of be all the well known golf pros and all the celebrities would come and play as well. So Dad was playing. We rocked up to the to the uh, to the course. And uh, got into the car park and would have been getting the clubs out of the back of the car. And as I said, Dad was a terrible putter, so there was always like six putters in the back of the car. So this is literally what he would do. He'd just grab one of them, see which one feels good for the day. You'd be standing on like a dirt car park, so he's not even putting a ball or anything with it. And you just go, yeah, we'll use that one, mate, throw it in the bag, and off we go. So we wandered down to the range to warm up. And in those days on the range, uh, there was no range ball, so you had to go down. The caddy would go down to the back of the range with a towel or something in your hand and the, the player would hit it to you and you'd kind of like catch it or whatever so we get down to the range and there's this guy there and he's warming up meticulously warming up i didn't know who he was and you could see he's got a beautiful golf swing and just working through the bag and my dad rocks up to him he goes oh hi john how are you going oh tom how are you going chats away so they're kind of talking i'm just standing there next thing they're announcing that the next groups to the tee so it's like 
Patrick Lynch, whoever, whoever's on the tee now. Next to the tee, Jay Clatt and whoever he was playing with. So we're still on the range. He hasn't hit a ball. So, so he goes to me, still chatting to Tomo. Uh, so he gives me, he says to me, um, I just grabbed six balls out of the bag. So he's, as he's chatting away, so I just grabbed six old balls out, throw them on the ground. He finishes chatting to Tomo, hits the balls away, and off we go up to the tee. And as we're walking up to the tee, I said to him, um, who, who's Tomo? He looks like he, he can really play. And he goes, oh, yeah, you could say that. He's won five British Opens. That's Peter Thompson. Oh, so, <laughs> so, so, like, and so Dad's, so that's the classic example, I reckon. So there's the, the consummate golf professional going through the whole thing. Dad just rocks up, hit six balls, probably went out and shot 68 or something that day anyway. And that was just how he played. So I kind of just grew up in that environment. That's what you did. You just went and played. So, so I never really got into the whole range thing. I never really got, consequently never got good enough to ever consider becoming a professional. Would have loved to. Looks like a great lifestyle, but never got there. Yeah, from the pros I've spoken to, there's a hell of a lot of travel. So, um... Yeah, look, I think if you're a young kid, the sort of early 20s and you're single and all that sort of stuff and you don't have kids, and fantastic lifestyle would be a great thing to do. But I fell into the industry, the golf side of the industry, really early um, after school. And once that sort of starts happening and your career starts to develop and you're getting on a path in that way, it's very hard to walk away and say, well, yeah, I'm going to give all that up in the solid wage and blah, 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 to go and chase this dream of becoming a golf pro. So... So it never really happened. So I just played as an amateur and played poorly. No, but so you said you fell into the industry. So was it always golf jobs for you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, when I left school, I was going to be an architect or a graphic designer or something like that. So I would have had some interest in design, which it's interesting as life pans out, how you come back to that sort of stuff. So I would have had a natural um, affinity or interest in that sort of side of things. And um, after I left school, uh, I, I didn't have enough, my marks were good enough to go to uni or college or anything like that. So mum and dad used to have a little, this little holiday place up in a place called Sunshine Beach on the coast. So I was up there just surfing and just not doing much at all. I remember mum ringing me going, Dean, what are you, what are you doing? This is after school had finished. And halfway through my last year at school, a guy that ran a golf company in Brisbane. So when I said we grew up in the back of the pro shop, so on school holidays and stuff, we'd spend a lot of time there. So dad would take me around. They used to physically drive around to all the warehouses and stuff and pick up the stock that they needed for the shop. So it could be golf shoes or golf clubs or whatever. Anyway, I got to know this guy and he offered me a job just working in the warehouse in this kind of distribution golf business, I guess. And uh, my mum rang up and said, look, I think you better ring that guy and see if that job's still available. So I did. and with no real intention of becoming my full-time career or anything and kind of just fell into working in this, this warehouse, just packing boxes and whatnot. And uh, there was a sales guy there that had left about six months after I left, after I started rather, and he left his position and they needed someone to do sales. So they thought, oh, we'll give Dean a go. And obviously my dad was really reasonably well-known, or very well-known probably in the industry in Queensland. And that's the territory that I was looking after. So. There was a lot of sympathy orders when I started on the road where this is John's son, we'll give you an order for, for, you know, you must be all right. So, and it kind of went from there. And then one thing led to another, ended up running uh, a business really, I was probably only 21 and was managing a a golf business there in Cleveland was one of the brands that we had. And um, so we had about five different brands and we did a couple of brands ourselves. So I started doing product development back down there. Uh, And in the end, Cleveland got so big. So when we started with Cleveland, it was called Cleveland Classics. So this was in the the late 80s, early 90s. And all I started with was was wedges. So tool grade wedges and persimmon woods. That was really all I had. One of the first meetings I ever had with anybody of any consequence was with actually Roger Cleveland. So it was his business. And uh, so we flew over to the the States to meet him. And (laughs) I was with one of the other guys, the older guys from, from work there. 
we landed to LAX airport and we had to drive. They were in, in um, I forget where the warehouse was, but it was about like an hour drive or something from LAX airport. So we head off. And in those days, there's no GPS or anything, so you have to use the maps. And we've got no idea where we're going. We're on the wrong side of the road. And, and the guy I was with was quite particular about staying off the, the expressways, you know, those big six-lane expressways and lots mm-hmm. of stuff in LA. So we went the back way to get to the, <laughs> the factory. We ended up driving through the middle of Compton, which is, if you know... Compton, yeah, it was like, like driving through a movie set. It was unbelievable. Anyway, when we got to the, the factory, there's the usual pleasantries when we got to Cleveland's head office. And they're like, oh, how was your flight? And how was your drive? And did you have any trouble getting here? Which way did you come? And we said, oh, we just came down, whatever the road was. I can't remember, El Segundo or something, straight through Compton. And they just, they're like, what? <laughs> how did you get here? And we sort of came through there. So so after we got there, we, we waited in the waiting room for about half an hour for Roger. I don't know what he was doing. And then we ended up getting escorted up to his office. So we just literally had flown all this way from Australia. So probably, I don't know how long it took us, 14, 15 hours. Driven an hour to get down to see him. And uh, we get into his office and he was kind of like, well, what are you guys? What are you guys doing here? And we're like, well, we're here for the meeting that we set up two weeks ago or whatever it was. And again, in those days, no email, no text. So it was all faxes and whatnot. And he goes, right, okay. Do you want to have a game of golf? And we go, yeah, okay. So then we ended up in this like a OJ Simpson car chase following him across the, the highways of LA to get to Lakeside Golf Club, which is where he was a member. And Lakeside's where I think Bing Crosby and Bob Hope and all those guys kind of played out of there. So it was a really, I think it might have been, it might be near Hollywood, I think. Um, it's one of those really exclusive American clubs. And Roger really wasn't giving us a huge amount of, of love at that stage. And I can remember, because we'd ordered some clubs and whatnot when we first got there. And uh, and so I can remember piping this drive down the first hole with this old, with this brand new Pacific Wood, it was one of his. And from that moment on, we were walking down the fairway and he goes, I've never seen him drive that far down there. And all of a sudden you thought, okay, you can play a little bit. So we're okay. And off we went. And that was kind of my start of my relationship with Roger Cleveland. And it wasn't much long after that, probably a couple of years after that, that he actually sold to uh, Rosignol, the French ski company. And that's when the whole thing really took off. So, so we were there, we rode that wave. It was an amazing time actually. So I was with them for 20 years and rode that wave from when they were literally this tiny little brand that just did really specialty so how they started, it was called Cleveland Classics. So he just used to make replicas of old classic golf clubs from the 40s and 50s. And that's kind of where it all started. So so we rode this wave of, of, of through that, of being this tiny little brand. So they got to a point where I think they're about the fifth biggest brand in the world. And we were the distributors for it in Australia. And it's a fantastic time. It was, it was great fun. Oh, brilliant. Um, and that's actually one of the questions is 1988, 2008, and it became one of the biggest brands in the world. How was that like? I suppose there's a couple of really good stories in there of like one of the big players at the time. Uh, was it VJ Singh was Cleveland? VJ won 11 times in one year, yeah, which was unbelievable. Um, and and that was, and it was really funny because down there in Australia, the, the tournaments are televised in the mornings because of the time difference, Southern Hemisphere. So you'd wake up on a Monday morning and you'd be getting a Sunday night feed from America. So you'd flick the TV on before you go to work just to see you catch the last like six holes or nine holes or something just to see if there's any Cleveland hats on the television and see who's doing well. And at that time, like VJ's, every time you turn the television on, he's like leading, he's winning, there's Cleveland everywhere and thinking it's going to be a good week this week. <laughs> it's going to be some sales this week. And that, that's kind of how it worked. And it was really, and I guess um, seeing behind the scenes and to, to get to, to see how C might have started, um, to see behind the scenes of how they do that, so how they take a brand from nothing to, to that sort of level and the formulas that they use. Like it's a pretty simple business formula that they all use. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, you kind of think, well, that's doesn't seem impossible. It seems like you could probably do that. So it's 
kind of the environment I grew up in. Oh, brilliant. And then uh, after Cleveland, there's a shift for you geographically, you're in the same way, so a lady came into the world. Well, yeah, it's that. And also, so my wife's Irish, as I said, so she's from Kildare, so she always wanted to, to move back here. And we always planned to at some point. And Strixon bought out Cleveland globally in two, late 2008, I think. And they bought out our business as a, as a part of that. So by that stage, the only brand we had was Cleveland. So we were essentially running Cleveland for all of Australia. And uh, yeah, so they bought us out, didn't want us. And they had plans with Cleveland to, as part of the Strixon empire. So Zexio was going to be their premium brand. Strixon was going to be their main product that they wanted to sell. And Cleveland was going to be just their entry level brand. And we'd always promoted it as being this really high class premium product and didn't really agree with the direction they were going in. So decided to, I knew I'm, we were going to come over here anyway, so we decided to go our separate ways and disbanded it. So we had, I can't remember how many stuff, we had like, there was 20 or 30 people working for us at that stage. So it was a reasonable size, not massive, but it was a reasonable size operation. It was a great, great lifestyle at that age to be, have such a strong brand and uh, on such an upswing and to be involved in all that. It was, it was a pretty good, pretty good time of life, really. Uh, Zexio. For, for up until this second, I've always called it XXIO. No, Zexio, that's how it's yeah. So that, that's their super premium brand. And and really, again, just behind the scenes, so why Strixon wanted Cleveland was Cleveland had great distribution in America. And J- Japanese brands, even to this day, struggle for whatever reason to get strong distributions into the American market. So what they wanted was the sales network that Cleveland had developed to be able to plug the golf ball sales into. So they had no intention of developing Cleveland into you know, what we were trying to develop it into. So they just kind of saw it as a big corporations, mate. They just kind of saw that as a way into the market and a quicker, quicker way of getting them distribution over there. So that's kind of what happened. So then moving here was, was really interesting because that whole thing I told you there before about being John's son in Australia and all that sort of stuff. So you have this reputation you develop over a period of time that you kind of take, well, I did anyway, stupidly, took it for granted and coming here, no one knows you from Adam and you kind of start from scratch and... That was, that was challenging times. It hasn't all been beer and Skittles to get to this point, but that's uh, just part of life, I think. So in such a saturated market where there is massive, massive companies. Billion dollar brands, yes. Billion dollar brands. What madness is there in you that you said, okay, I'm going to start a golf balls company? Oh, uh, I think... It's, it seems perfectly natural thing for me to do. Like, it's, my career would have been leading to that point anyway, having done uh, managed those as i said there before having managed some of those larger brands and I, I, when i moved here to ireland so i managed a couple of what i'd call second tier brands so they weren't the big five or six but they were the next level under that for here and also for the uk and some into europe as well so we did some online plays so we had a couple of internet based brands and working with those second and third tier brands what tends to happen is um you realize very quickly where the market's going and how th- like golf is a really conservative traditional slow moving industry from an industry point of view and the game's probably that way too um so the stuff we're doing now with seed had been done in other industries you know five years before we started but it just hadn't really got to golf yet so what what i was seeing with selling those second or managing those second and third tier brands was the constriction point was really at retail so retailers they're uh, you know they're being attacked by online businesses all that sort of stuff amazons of the world and even online golf dealers and that type of thing so consequently they don't have the, the necessarily the turnover or the scope to stock every available product that's out there. So to get the best deal, the large companies do it quite well. So if you want to deal with Callaway, you have to take the ball, you have to take the clubs, you have to take the gloves, you have to take everything to get the multiple discounts across all the lines to be able to actually make some money out of selling it. So if you're a small golf pro, you kind of lock yourself into maybe one or two brands, maybe three at best, and that's about all you can do. So when 
Dean from Australia comes along with his fancy fancy new products. They're like they don't really have room to take it. But what we were finding is our online dealers. So there was quite a few online retailers in the UK, particularly that were growing rapidly, and, and the product was was being taken up by consumers really, really quickly. So the consumers were open to new brands and different products and different styles, and you could see the market segmenting. segmenting. Um, and as well, the, the market research I was getting across my desk, so obviously in those sort of positions, you're getting all the industry information about what's happening. So golf would have gone through a period where would have got a bad rap for, for player uh, for player membership, you know, going down and golf's dying and all that sort of stuff. But if you, if you read the data, you could start to see that the number of rounds plays were starting to tick up again the last since about 2016, I think. Just very very gradually, but you could see it was starting to pick up. And the likes of Top Golf coming into the industry. And essentially, there's just new ways for people to, to get into golf. Um, and the, the, the people that are, the new people that are taking up the game tend to be, it's a bad term, but millennials, so younger people are coming to the game. Women are starting to come into the game a little bit. And juniors, obviously, are coming into it as well. But the way they interact with the game is very differently than perhaps certainly what I would have done as a kid. So they might get exposed to a driving range or over here, it might be pitch and putt or there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways. In London, for example, there's those urban golf facilities. I don't know if you've ever been to one, but they're fantastic indoor golf facilities. You can go in, have a few beers with your mates and play. Pitch, Pitch London is one. Yeah, fantastic. Class. I was in there, it's, it's unreal. Oh, so there's like five we... or eight track men in the studios. It's brilliant. There's couches, yeah. dim, dim lighting, you know. It's brilliant. And, and, and we, I, when I, I would, uh, when I was working over there, so I'd be a week, a month over there, so we just spend a bit of time in there. And if I'd have mates from Australia that would be over, we'd often find ourselves in there at night playing Augusta or something on a simulator and having a couple of beers, and it was great fun. So, so in all those type of environments, you could see that golf was, was changing slowly and there was different avenues to getting into it. You didn't have to be a member of a golf club to experience golf. And I kind of felt that there'd be... And the other thing, as I said, knowing the business plans or the business models that those large companies use... Um, this is quite technical business and stuff, but if you know the business plans that they use, it's kind of hard for them to do what we're doing. So they're locked into, particularly so Titleist, which would be our number one competitor. Um, they're locked into that whole thing of supporting the club pro, selling through the local pro shop. And there's a cost associated with doing that. There is levels of distribution cost that kind of add to, add, add layers to the, the, the end result. Um, like fantastic product, no doubt about it, but it makes it hard for that business model to um, to do what we're doing. So anyway, I saw that there was potential that we could set up a new brand that would target those younger people coming to the game, you know, something fresher. It's not your dad's brand. It's not stuff that your grandfather would use or that type of thing. And uh, the whole direct-to-consumer thing of selling direct online meant that was really our only avenue I could see with competing with those large companies is we had to be significantly, the significant price differential. So if our mantra is same performance half the price. So if we can develop a product that performs pretty close to what's already out there and do it for, for less money than what the um, uh, what the normal going rate would be, and then we felt there would be a market opportunity for that. So that, that's what happened. So Enterprise Island got involved with this really, really early on. That's how we ended up in Carlo IT. They got a department of aerospace down there, a really good um, sort of rapid prototyping product lab called Design Core that have helped us out a little bit. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it all, it all happened. But I could see, you could just see the market changing this is like five years ago, we probably first proposed to do it. Um, you could just see the market changing and that perhaps there was potential for it to do it. Not guaranteed, but perhaps there was potential. So, you know, it didn't seem like that wild a stretch for me to do it. And I think as well, that environment I was talking about growing up with, um, being exposed to those type of players, you know, Greg and Grades and Baker Finch and all those guys. I mean, just when you see them when you're younger, like they're just normal guys like you and me and they just happen to do extraordinary things. So 
you kind of always have this thing, I guess, that um, there's no reason why it couldn't happen. Like, highly unlikely, might be a little bit delusional, but there's no reason why it couldn't. You're dead right. Um, and for anyone listening who's maybe not as technical or understand the terms, it's basically um, same performance, half the price, because you're buying from the factory, essentially. Yeah, we sell direct to consumer. So the only place you can buy our balls is on our website, cgolf.com, little plug there. Um, oh, don't worry, all the links will be oh, okay, great. showing us below. Yeah, that's the only way we do it. The other thing we did, which was a little unusual to start with, we did a via subscription. So very early on, our, our thing was, um, and look, there's a few anecdotes, you, you might have seen them, I, I use them all the time. I was playing golf with a mate of mine over in England, and uh, we were playing at Prince's, we played Sink Ports, which are both former open courses from years ago. And after the second day, we were playing at Prince's. And after the, the first nine we played that day, he was running out of golf balls. Good player. He used to be a tour player. And um, went into the pro shop and bought a dozen top flights. And I can remember he came out and I'm like, mate, what have you, what have you bought those for? And he just looked at me and said, Dino, losing expensive balls isn't fun. And, and there is that mentality of us as golfers that, you know, five or six quid for a golf ball and you just go and have two hits with it and whack it into the, the reeds. You know, no one really enjoys doing that. So there was a whole bunch of reasons, but there was... a as you were getting into it and, and looking at the market changing and all that type of stuff, um, I kind of thought there was potential to do it. And the only way we could do it at that price point was to do it direct. So you have to buy them direct from us. So we don't deal with any of those middlemen. We cut out all the retail distribution costs and layers of costs and whatnot. And um, yeah, that's that's how we do it. No, did I? Um, why is it conceded? Because the reason I ask is, yeah, I. Put out a social I play with the ball, you've got a couple we know each other a couple of years. Um, so I've been playing seed one and seed two around two two plus years now. Mm-hmm. But I get like I might put up on social media wherever I'm telling my pals and I like, oh it's called seed because you troll around the course and lose them, so you're planting seeds everywhere. No, no. But that's no. not the reason. No, no, it's it's not and it's it's really uh, it's kind of a silly story or maybe a funny story. So I was playing golf with a mate of mine in Australia, regular mate of mine who I play with at the club we were, I was a member at and uh, he rocked up to the first tee he used to caddy a bit for a few golf pros and stuff down there and he goes Dino what, what seed are you using today and I looked at him and I thought I have no idea what you're talking about didn't say anything just still working out where I'm going to hit my drive down the 10th fairway or whatever we were hitting off on and he goes mate seed seed what seed you got I'm still looking at him no idea what he's talking about and he goes seed ball ball what ball are you using and he goes oh, I got a Titleist 4 or whatever it might be and um, so it's just, it was a slang word in Australia on, on the golf tours that that's what they would call a golf ball. So you get to the tee and they go, what seed you got today? And they go, well, I've got a Bridgestone 2 or a Titleist 4 or whatever it is. So I just always had that in the back of my mind that that was just a slang for, for golf ball. And I kind of thought it was a global phenomenon, which it's not. It's just an Australian thing. So when I got over here, I get asked that a lot. Why is it called seed? But that's where it came from. It's just a slang. It's from the tour slang word for golf ball. No, it's brilliant because it just it gets you talking about it then as well over here. Mm. So it's it's a win-win situation in terms of yeah, the slang term in golf, but it also gets people talking about yeah. seed and what does it mean and yeah. what is it. And it's a very difficult thing actually coming up with a brand name for a new product. So I'm look, pretty I'm pretty standard on the name and conventions. Paddy something Paddy golf. No, that's fine. But that's little, little, for what you're doing, that's that's perfect. But but yeah, for for so when we would have sat down and scribbled out this little business plan on the back of a beer coaster when we started, um, you know, it sounds really easy. You go, oh, okay, we'll develop this golf ball and oh, we'll sell it online and oh, it'll be 50% less than everybody else. This is going to be great. And then you go, okay, that's a solid business idea. But then you go, okay, hang on a sec. We've got to actually develop the product first and foremost, which is really difficult. And then you've got to 
you know, convince people to buy it. So you know, that whole branding thing of what it's called and how it's pitched and all that sort of stuff comes into play as well. So the first thing was the actual physical product. And I think the branding is pretty slick, down point. Um, but the logo is intriguing, as in what the logo is. So can you describe it? Yeah, the, 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 we call it, there's two we use. There's one's called the Target logo, so that's the green ring, which would be the, the putting green. Um, it's, there's a little black ring underneath that, which is what we signify as the golf hole, and there's the white dot, which is the golf ball going home to the bottom of the cup. So that's, I think that's ingenious. I think yeah, it's brilliant. I saw a couple of people that would isn't like, my God, that is class. Clever. Yeah, well, it, it, look, it comes from, there's a lot of stuff that influences when we put it together, so we would have pulled a lot of influence from, you sort of see that, um, there's a, old, oh, uh, it's not, I was going to say pop-up, I don't think it's pop-up, but in the UK there's an old, there's a logo that's kind of similar to that, which has got coloured rings. It's the Spitfire, um, Spitfire, yeah, Spitfire yeah, firefighter plant from World War II. So it's kind of a classic image that we just twisted around, and even the way we code our stuff, I don't know if you're familiar with Factory Records from Manchester, it'll be a bit of a music buff. So yeah. that, that FAC, FAC, you know, with all those Joy Division, New Order stuff would have all been, everything was called FAC something or other, with a number on the end of it, so that's where SD... A one SD seventy. That's where that comes from. So we pull a lot of sort of pop culture stuff into it as well. And You're a mod. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. I'm from Brisbane. I know no mods in Brisbane. A Brisbane mod. Yeah. So uh, so, but that's that's where all that came from. So all that stuff. And there's a good mate of mine back in Australia, a guy called Gary Smith, that helped me out with all that. And uh, yeah, we we've, we've won awards for the branding and all that sort of stuff before we started. So um, so yeah, so it, it definitely helps. But it, there's a lot goes into it. It's not just. Um, as I said, that idea of sitting around in a pub going, oh, let's do this, this is easy. There's a lot of work to it. It took two years from, well, probably longer, but it took kind of two years from that point to get it to, we actually had something to get to market. And in preparing for this, uh, you Google stuff, mm-hmm. right? So I Googled top questions to ask a CEO of a company, <laughs> okay. right? Go for it. So this, the, I only pick one of them. Okay. okay. So, and... It's, it may be a good one, so let's go over it. How do you see the company changing in two years? And how do you see yourself creating that change? Oh, that's an easy one, Patty. I thought you were going to give me hard. No, I didn't say no, that. Now, the, what I would say with the direct online internet strategies is a little bit limiting, limiting. Certainly, a lot of the world is going that way, but there's with the, the industry and the type of product that we sell, it is very much a um, touchy-feely, try-type product. And we have ambition to be more than just golf balls. So how do we do that in our, in our field? And I think traditional retail is, uh, in its current format, is struggling a little bit and probably needs to be, to be changed. And I mentioned those urban golf facilities. So I, what I kind of see us doing in a couple of years' time would be having uh, seed-type facilities where you could go to. That might be the first one, hopefully, we'll put into Dublin um, just to try it and see if it actually works, where it would be a facility where golfers could go in any weather conditions. And that's the thing I noticed when I first got here, being a Southern Hemisphere Brisbane boy, is you cope with... A lot of different variety of weather conditions here and you can't get out all the time so having some sort of indoor facility where you can go on and as i said play augusta or st andrews on a simulator and maybe have a couple of beers or a cup of coffee and have a chat with your mates for half an hour an hour that's a that's a good environment and if you could also test our product be that hardware or golf balls or whatever that kind of works for us as well so i would see us developing into that type of format uh, definitely developing into other products you know we're already working on uh, outerwear is going to be a big thing for us i think as we move forward any sort of we look at the industry perhaps with slightly different eyes. So what we would look at is um, some of the most trade secret stuff. But what we would look at, similar to what we looked at with the balls. So when we looked at the balls, there was um, 
about 70% of the market was taken up between Titleist and Shrixon in market share. So between those two companies, they kind of had the bulk of the market. And that's what you might look at that from a layman and think, gee, that's going to be difficult to target those guys. But that actually creates opportunity because they're so big. And as I said, stuck to their business plan and business model. It's hard for them to react to small little upstarts like us. So we look at other uh, segments of the industry, golf industry, that might have similar market conditions to that. And a classic is outerwear. When you look at the, say, Galvin Green, who have a very high quality product that is, is really, really good, but it's very, very expensive. And they have similar market share themselves, 68%, I think, that would probably be open to us doing something similar. So we've been working on that for a little while. Golf bags is the next logical thing for us. There's a real sustainability angle as well to what we do. So all our packaging is quite unique. Like that's all recycled board, cardboard that we use um, to throw away products. So we kind of figured we wanted to have some sort of sustainability angle to it. So the golf bag, we're looking at using a material that we've, we haven't developed it personally, but that's been developed that uses uh, recycles plastic water bottles. So there's about 27 water bottles, plastic water bottles go into making the yarn for the, the golf bag that we're looking at putting together at the moment. So that's fully waterproof, um, recycled material, all that type of stuff I think is a good, as long as it performs, uh, that's a good thing to do. And same with the outerwear, you know, it's a recycled material we're looking at using as well for that. So, um, so yeah, I would see us developing beyond golf balls and also beyond the online space. Um, how am I gonna pull that together? Well, you can only do so much by yourself. So really what it's about for us now, coming from a startup where it was really just me and an idea, and that's where Enterprise Island helped early on, is really about building out a team. And I've been very fortunate through a couple of organizations over here, not just Enterprise Island, but another company called Startup.com, which is kind of like a private version of, uh, private enterprise version of Enterprise Island that have helped us raise funding and given us kind of mentoring support and given us access to all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't have had access personally myself that really helped kind of ramp it up. So yeah, building out the team to be able to execute the grand visions that I would have for this little organization. That was brilliant. And like, it's a brand that I associate in kind of like a little family of cult brands that I like to get. It's like their seed and Link Soul is a bit bigger, but the same, they're very... Same community-based, similar vibe, yeah. similar vibe, surfing golf, uh, Sugarloaf Social Club, all that type of thing, all yeah. West Coast America, yeah. the same kind of... Well, they're, they're the same thing, it's, it's that looking at, same thing we did, we really tie it, so, so Link Soul's a good example, so they would tie the whole surf golf thing together, which is fine, that's where they're from, and for us, that's why, I've not seen a hashtag we use, Link's Life, oh, we, we've done a Link's Life thing up in Donegal there, um, so that's where we try and tie in the whole Irish Link's Golf angle to what we're doing, so it's kind of... There's a there's a definite um, you know, there's a definite golfy link, particularly that the whole links thing, and that comes from me. I think having played golf in Australia, where there really aren't links golf courses, and the first one I ever played over here was Ballybunion, and that was in about 2000, I think, and that was that was I was like Al Shervick in the pro shop out of Caddyshack because I I, my, I just met my wife at that stage, so we met down in Australia, and I came over here in '99, I think, for Christmas. And we would just drive around, so she would show me around the country and show me all the different sites and stuff. And we were driving around, I was looking on the map, and there's Bally Bunyan. And I said to her, oh, there's a really good golf course there, do you mind if I have a game? And she goes, no, fine, go for it. So middle of January, dead of winter, no one's there, so I walked in the Why are you doing pro- playing Bally Bunyan in January, Dean? <laughs> Mate, it was the greatest experience of my life. And we walked into the pro shop, and of course I didn't have anything. So I had to go to the pro, I need a pair of shoes, I need that rain gear. And honestly- the Second Christmas party. Yeah, he must have thought it was the greatest day of his life. And, uh, so my wife's a non-golfer, so we were walking around that day, and she said, Dean, um, how much did it cost you to play today? And I said, oh, I think it was about 40 punt in those days. She goes, 40 punt? That's, that's a lot of money to walk around in a field all day. And I'm like, a field? This is like one of the greatest golf courses in the world. What are you talking about? 
And and my, I, my, I can really remember this. My first experience of that was walking around after only about a hole or two, and you kind of go, oh, "Okay, this is what golf's supposed to be. This is what it's all about." And that whole thing of playing uh, natural golf, of not practicing and stuff, that just suited my mentality. Of you just, it's, it doesn't matter how far you hit it, doesn't matter where you hit it, you just got to make a score. And that's what I really enjoyed about it. So anyway, so we try and bring that vibe into the, the brand. And when we very first started the business as well, so Enterprise Island will be on this, there was three things. So we, the first year we traded, we didn't, we've only been trading for two years, I think now. So the first year we didn't advertise at all. So no marketing. So again, the idea that you're going to start a golf brand and not market it is kind of a fairly unique way to go about it. But what we really wanted to find out was three things. Was, was one, would people buy into, you know, is that concept believable? Could you actually develop something that plays as well as something out there? For half the price is that possible two would they buy a brand they've never heard of online that's there's a it was really interesting when those first orders start coming in you, you kind of sit there and go well that's amazing there's a lot of trust being put into that whole environment online environment to no one knows who we are we've never started no one heard of the brand and yet people are giving us their money on the hope that we would send them this product and i just thought that was you know it's a real it's a real vote of confidence or it's a real show of confidence in what you're doing so that kind of needs to be reciprocated i always thought and the third thing was, would they share it with their mates? So would you get to the to tea on a Saturday and go, oh, I found this great new body. You won't believe how good this is. And the amount of emails and messages and social DMs and stuff we would get saying, put a dozen off you on Wednesday. I gave them away to all my mates on Saturday. I need to get two more off you. That would happen all the time in the beginning. And again, you kind of sit here and go, wow, this is amazing. You know, you've got this, that whole cult thing you were talking about. You're developing this community of, of, of people, not just customers, but people that are really interested in what you're doing. And not only that, they're helping you promote it and, once we started to tick a few of those boxes, you kind of go, okay, this, this might actually have legs, this thing. So okay, that's how it happened. There's a couple of questions, and we're going to quick fire Q&A after this. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's a couple of pretty common questions I see, like when I see a seed post, and it might be 30, 40 comments, but generally the same couple crop up all the time. Mm-hmm. So we can address those now, sure. rather than me uh, feeding the questions afterwards. And so pretty common. So you can keep the answer short if you need to. And what I see a lot is, uh, can I get a discount code? Is there a special offer? Uh, what's your approach to those? Wow. Can you see those type of comments that's on a, on a, on a well, brand that's already half the price? Well, we're already on we're on discount every day of the year, so that's the whole thing with us. And that um, little anecdote I gave you there before of my mate buying the top flights at Prince's, there was the, this whole thing of using different balls because they're on sale or on special. It's not actually doing your game any good. So we kind of thought if we developed something that was a really consistent, boring, really high quality product that you could always would be on sale essentially all the time and that was where the subscription idea came in so once you're happy with you pick whichever one of ours that you might like you're happy with that just set it up and you forget about it you get them every month or every two months or every three months or however you play and you you kind of get that consistency of using the same product all the time so but um, you're not paying 50 euros or 45 euros yeah well, well, the, the, in, it's really interesting in the two years we've been doing this the cost of balls has come down a little bit so i wouldn't say that specifically for us but there's obviously competition out there that's driving prices down and even for titleists to do that thing where if you buy three dozen you get another dozen for free i mean that would never five years ago that would never have happened on pro v1 so it gives you some idea of how the market's changing and how quickly that's happening but um but yeah we, we i would just say look we're on sale every day of the year so there's no some occasionally we will like black friday little heads up there might be a little sweetener there for somebody but but generally we would do stuff like it might be free shipping worldwide we'd have a lot of interest that whole because we're an irish brand even though i'm australian uh, because we're an irish brand that story is really interesting to a lot of the dis, dis, uh, what's diaspora it? diaspora yes 
um, living overseas. So we've we've expanded into I think it's thirty two countries or something now already, that's and that's really just that that story, traveling and, and people wanting a touch of home and like the idea of the David and Goliath thing. There's a touch of, and we were speaking before. There's a there's a sporadic order from the UAE. Or Dubai or somewhere? Yeah, well, that was first. That was kind of first. How, yeah, well, they come from everywhere, really. But that's how we figured out what was happening. So what happened? This was in Christmas last year. We started to get some orders from um, from I was going to say Dubai. It wasn't Dubai. Bahrain. We started to get some orders from Bahrain, and we're looking at it going in the office, going, "This is really weird. Like, there should be gold plated down there, not what we're doing. You know, this shouldn't be happening." And anyway, it turned out we did a bit of research, and what it was, there was a guy, Irish fellow. It wasn't like Sheikh Mohammed we were sending him to. It was an Irish... Sheikh Murphy. Yeah. It was an Irish fellow we were sending him out there to. And he bought, I can't remember, 20 or 30 dozen. So he must have must have a big job out there, had a golf day or something, and must have given them all away. And the next thing, we started to get these orders through from Bahrain. And, and that sort of stuff happens all the time. And that's happened in Hong Kong. It's happened in Singapore. It's happened in America. It's kind of happened everywhere. So, so yeah, I think the whole Irish angle... Um, and someone asked me the other day, which was a really interesting question, I thought... If you were to set, had I stayed in Australia and set this up, would it be as successful as it is now? And I would say definitely not. I think the whole, just the, the level of support that I've got from, uh, as I mentioned there before, Enterprise Island and all that type of thing. Um, and just the Irish, uh, you know, we're an authentic golf brand. And Ireland, it's not quite the home of golf, but it's pretty close. There's a, there's a lot of really good golf courses here and you punch above your weight for tour players and that type of thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of heritage around golf here, so for, it's kind of a natural extension for a golf brand to come here. We don't have any of that in Australia, so um, I think, I think, I don't know. I think one of the reasons Nike would have got out of the golf business and not succeeded, my theory has always been, it's because they're not an authentic golf brand. They're a sporting goods product, and we as golfers are aware that they probably haven't designed a lot of that stuff themselves, and it's kind of just a branding thing. Whereas the brands that are successful are authentic golf brands. It is Titleist, it is Callaway, it is TaylorMade, it is Ping. You know, they don't do anything else other than make golf products. So I think if you're going to attempt to be a golf company, you need that authenticity and Ireland definitely gives us that. And the second question is kind of like the first one is, how can there be half the price of competitor premium golf balls? I can get two dozen Pro V1s for yeah, like as I said there before, they've definitely come down. Um, but you have to shop around for them and they might be the 2017 model or whatever that might be. And I think um, that's just competition. And if look at people, it's a free world out there. If people want to shop around, they're welcome to it. But as I said, our point really is you kind of know what you're getting from us. So we're, we provide a good product that performs really well at a, at a pretty fair price, I think. And it's always at that price. So it's, um, it's really up to the end user and, and look it's, people are still going to use Titleist it's a good product there's no reason not to but there's also people that want something different to that and that's who we target yeah no, I'm kind of like the, the no laying up crowd is I won't get into a seat so if I find something else I'll give it, I just give it away it's, funny. <laughs> it's really funny now if I'm playing with, with guys that I remember at Palmerston down here and if I'm playing with them and we find golf balls I, I can't keep them I have to yeah. say, here you guys have these I can't use that <laughs> so good to me yeah but, uh, right, uh, quick fire Q&A. Fire away. So everyone comes on, Spanish Inquisition. Uh, are you ready for this? Yeah. Alright. What would your walk-on song be? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, when you say walk-on song, what do you mean by that? 
You're entering a boxing like ring or you're walking onto the first tee in the Super Sixes. Okay. What song is playing? Well, you? I think or you're walking out of the shower. What song is that? I, I think it, I'd have to go back to an old Australian band called Midnight Oil who have a song called Only, Only the Strong. And I saw them play in Dublin here just recently. And uh, it was like stepping back in time. It was fantastic. So I'd go with Midnight Oil, Only the Strong. Hopefully I can find that one. They can definitely find it. Gym or pizza? I've never been to a gym in my life. I don't really like pizza, but I don't like pizza. Hat visor or bucket hat? Now, for a brand that is just after releasing hats. Paddy cap. I'm paddy cap all the way. Here we go. Happy Gilmore or Tin Cup? Uh, tin Cup, I'd say. Guinness? I've done that a lot. But oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I did that the other day, Palmerston. <laughs> I had about four in order because I knew I could make that shot, but I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, Guinness or Heineken? Oh, Guinness all the way. Le Hinch or Port Manor? Uh... I'd probably say the Hinch. I've played both a good few times. Played the Hinch probably more. I think the Hinch just has. I like the whole. Down there. Yeah. The whole if I could, if my ideal place to live would be the Hinch, because you can surf, you can play golf on a fantastic golf course, and you've got a great little village. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it, the Hinch has got a, It's a fantastic place. So yeah, I'd, I'd say the Hinch. Part mining's a fantastic golf course, but I'd say yeah, I'd go, go to the Hinch. Yeah. Walk or cart. Oh, walk definitely. Can't stand golf course. Win the Masters or win the Open? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, so when I was a kid, you know how I said, my, so we had the Claret Jug was in our house for about a week after Norman won his first British that's, Open. That's brilliant. This is a very embarrassing story I'm about to tell about myself. And so everybody in our family had their photo taken with the, the Claret Jug, except me. Because I always thought, well, what would I want a photo except for? I didn't win it. I haven't done anything to, to win it. I thought when I win it, I will get my photo taken with it then. How old were you? Oh, I don't know. It was, when was it? 16? Yeah, what was it? Yeah, teenager. That's 16 now, I guess. Yeah, isn't it? And well, that's how we started golf around ourselves. It's that sort of thinking. And uh, obviously that's never happened. You know, I don't have a photo. It's the correct job. But coming from Australia, the Open was always a big one. But again, on that story, not to talk about him all the time, but... Um, uh, Norman had always said that he would have swapped all those tournaments he won to win the Masters. That was always his thing. So, so anyway, the, the opening for the Good old Would you rather drive it like Dustin Johnson or drive it like Zach Johnson? Dustin, all day. Instagram or Twitter? I'm not, this will sound really weird. I'm not a huge fan of social media, even though our whole business is based around it. Um, Instagram or Twitter. Uh, I like Twitter because you can be a little bit more have a little bit more of a sense of humor on Twitter, I think. Yeah, Instagram is very, it can be very staged. Well, it's kind of but Twitter is more reactive. Yeah, it can be. Instagram's kind of stylized. I kind of like that. And we, we, we attempt to do, we don't do it very well, but we probably attempt to do a bit of that. But Twitter, I like the, uh, you can get in the mire in there, but I kind of like that you can be you can be funny and offhand and all that sort of stuff. It's a good environment for that. Yeah. And last one, play or practice? I, I'm just not a range rat at all. I just never go to the range, so I'd, I'd play all the time. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for sponsoring the show. I think everybody who's listening, uh, get in touch with me. We'll find you at a range. I'll give you a couple of seeds and all that. Thanks for coming the show. Really excited to see what's coming for the brand, especially if we're talking some indoor golf activities with a couple of points. Give us a couple of years for that. Maybe a couple of years, yeah. But yeah, thanks a million. No worries. Well, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for all the support too. And uh, thanks to all the listeners out there who have probably supported us as well. Really appreciate it. And um, keep, uh, keep posted of what's going on. That was Mr. Dean Clatt of Seed Golf, based out of Carlow IT and massively growing brand in terms of how quick it's growing here in Ireland. Shipping to 35 plus countries worldwide, it really is going places. 
If you want to learn more about Seed Golf, all the details are in the description below. Website, social media platforms, all that jazz. Get involved, get sharing, let everybody know about them. And um, they really are just as good as those high premium brands you all know about. Thank you all for getting involved. Thank you all for listening. Hit the show a follow, rate and review it if that is your style. Most of all, please share the show with your family and friends. Thanks for pressing play. Until we heat up again soon, I'm Paddy. Mm-hmm.